Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. After our last two episodes being um, quite controversial and depressing, I wanted to do a bit more mainstream subject and return to my military technology series, because, well, apparently I have a lot of ongoing stuff happening at the time. And I've been doing a lot about tanks, but I need to kind of segue myself into the next important category of combat vehicles. So why not pick up something that is literally called a flying tank? So in this episode, we will be talking about the Soviet Ilyushin-2, or Il-2, aircraft. It's super iconic. If you've ever played the famous airplane simulator game, it was named after that, and it was the most produced combat aircraft in World War II, with more than 35,000 planes built. However, very few of them have survived to this day. To its many, many fans, the plane is known by its World War II names as Sturmovik, or Stormbird, Flying Tank, Hunchback, or Flying Infantryman. Its post-war NATO reporting name was Bark. During the war, Soviet pilots called it Ilyusha, while German pilots in amazement called it Betonflugzeug, or Concrete Plane, or Eisener Gustav, which is Iron Gustav. Basically, on the wings of Il-2, of a large degree, rested the defense of the Soviet Union after the Nazi invasion, and you have to say thanks to this plane for even winning the whole war. Like the Russian T-34 tank, the Il-2 plane has become a very iconic symbol of World War II around in these parts, so I think it's just right and proper that we give the old bomber its rightful place on the eastern border. Weirdly enough, my research tells me that Il-2 is not very well known in the West. However, it is the second most produced aircraft ever, exceeded only by the Cessna 172 plane. But yeah, today only about a dozen Il-2s are in existence, which is a testament to how brutal the war on the Eastern Front was. When the Nazis attacked the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, the whole government was thrown into confusion and disarray. And at the time of the attack, the Soviet Air Force was undergoing a major modernization program to upgrade its capabilities with a variety of new warplanes. But delivery and integration of these new aircraft into the Soviet Air Force was quite slow, and only a small number of the new bomber, fighter, and attack aircraft had made it to the frontline Air Force units. 
Obviously, one of the most important of these new types was the Ilyushin Il-2 Sturmovik, a rugged, single-engine, ground-attack aircraft. Its origins date back to the mid-1930s, when Soviet military specialists realized that the country needed a dedicated aircraft with dive-bombing capabilities, capable of independently attacking and disabling enemy ground forces and targets, including tanks and, well, APCs and any other armored stuff. So, in early 1938, Sergei Ilyushin, head of the legendary Ilyushin Aircraft Design Bureau, and in these series we'll be talking about Mikoyan and Ilyushin and a lot of these designers, well, he suggested to our good old friend Uncle Joe the idea of a flying tank, and asked that his bureau be allowed to design and construct such an aircraft. And, uh, somewhat unusually, for the normal Soviet technology acquisition process, because if you've heard our episode on the computers or, or any of the tanks, you know, there was no design competition or request for proposals from other Soviet aircraft design bureaus. Because, you know, normally these bureaus would compete and there would be kind of internal rivalries happening, but none of this here. Ilyushin's idea was approved and two prototype Il-2s were ordered, with the first flying in October 1939. Originally conceived as a two-seater, the Il-2 was redesigned as a single-seater to achieve better flying characteristics. After an Il-2 pilot wrote directly to Stalin, suggesting that a gunner behind the pilot was needed to fend off Nazi fighters seeking to shoot down the aircraft, the Il-2 was again redesigned as a two-seater. Following successful flight tests, the type was ordered into production. About 249 Il-2s were built by the time Nazi Germany invaded. But of these, a mere 70 were actually in service at the time. Even worse, only 20 of them were in service with the frontier military districts. Their pilots had only undergone a minimum training in operational air tactics that ultimately would make the Il-2 so successful. And, well, these pilots and everything, uh, they were not in existence yet. The Il-2 combat initiation came on June 27th, 1941, just five days after the invasion, when five of them attacked a German convoy of tanks and mechanized infantry. To achieve the full potential of the warplane, production needed to be sharply ramped up. This wasn't an easy task since the invasion had dislocated most of the production facilities. Stalin did not conceal his rage at this whole disruption of production. In telegram to the directors of one of the troubled Il-2 plants, he wrote, quote, <clears throat> You have let down our country and our Red Army. You have the nerve not to manufacture Il-2s until now. Our Red Army now needs Il-2 aircraft like the air it breathes, like the bread it eats. This plant now only produces one Il-2 per day. It is a mockery of the Red Army. I ask you not to try the government's patience and demand that you manufacture more Il-2s. This is my final warning. Stalin. End quote. Not surprisingly, Il-2 production increased sharply within weeks. Over the course of the war, a total of between 35,000 Il-2s were to be produced, more than any other combat aircraft in World War II. The Il-2 is anything but advanced in its mixed wood and metal construction, which was relatively easy to manufacture in significant numbers using relatively unskilled workers. But for an aircraft, it was amazing. Among the Sturmovik's most important assets was its strength and robustness in combat. The forward fuselage section, protecting the aircraft's fuel system, radiators and crew station, was built entirely of armor plate. Thus, the Il-2 could and often did absorb extraordinary battle damage and survive to fight another day. The protective armor shell employed 
a special alloy developed for the Il-2. Its thickness varied by location on the airframe. Special consideration had been given to a technology that would allow maintenance personnel to stamp the armor steel in the field, thus providing flexibility in the design, especially when Soviet units were forced to operate from primitive forward battle arenas. The heavy armor of the Il-2 led to its German nickname Betonflugzeug, or concrete plane, since it was basically impossible to shoot down an Il-2 with a machine gun or a 20mm cannon. Early combat experience, however, quickly revealed that the single-seat Il-2's great vulnerability to German attack from behind. This was compounded by the inability of escorting Russian fighters, which operated at much higher altitudes than the Sturmovics, to protect their charges. The Il-2s, of course, had to operate at extremely low heights to strike their ground targets successfully. The response was development of a two-seat Il-2 with the second crew member operating rearward firing machine guns. This new version quickly supplanted the single-seat version of the Il-2 production lines. On the website, I remember Soviet World War II veteran memoirs, Il-2 pilot Yuri Kurchikov recalls, quote, It was an excellent aircraft for those times. We carried 600 kilograms of bombs, 8 rockets, 323 millimeter shells for the cannon, of 150 rounds for each gun, and 1800 rounds for the machine guns, end quote. According to Hukrikov, the engine was the most vulnerable part of the Il-2. Quote, The wings were fine, more or less. If a fuel tank was hit, that wasn't bad either. Why? When we approached the target, we opened carbon dioxide canisters, which filled the empty space of the fuel tanks. If a bullet pierced the body and hit the fuel tank, the sealer would fill the hole, fuel would not leak out, there would be no vapor, and consequently no combustion. End quote. The Sturmovik, however, wasn't a wonder weapon. It was a robust plane, very Soviet. One of its most glaring problems was the inaccuracy of its attacks. Although massive numbers of these bombers supported main offensives of the ground troops, the aircraft's effect was often rather psychological, especially against targets that were dug in or armored. Additionally, the heavy weight of the Il-2's armor meant that the Sturmoviks could not carry heavy bomb loads. Nevertheless, Sturmoviks played a critical role in the massive Soviet counteroffensives against the German forces. The Il-2 was particularly effective against transport and logistical equipment, including fuel transport, personnel and supplies. In late November 1942, hundreds of Il-2s were deployed to provide close air support for Soviet ground troops encircling German panzer forces near Stalingrad. Escorted by fighter aircraft, Il-2s achieved great success during the strike on the airfield at Salsk, a primitive airstrip used by the Germans for Luftwaffe operations. In January 1943, the Germans had based up to 150 aircraft there, which were parked close together and thus very vulnerable to attack. They were an ideal target for Il-2s, which flew at near treetop altitude, hoping to avoid detection by German fighters and anti-aircraft artillery. The Russian planes executed seven lightning-quick strafing runs over the German base. The Germans were caught by surprise, and 72 German aircraft were destroyed. In an attack during the Kursk battle in summer 1943, Il-2s destroyed 70 tanks of the German 9th Panzer Division within 20 minutes. A number of Il-2 pilots became highly successful aces. Among them, by the way, interestingly enough, were also women, because women fought in the Soviet army, which, as far as I know, didn't really happen in other countries at that time. Senior Lieutenant Anna Yegorova, 
who flew 243 missions in Il-2 and received the gold star of the hero of the Soviet Union in late 1944 after she was taken prisoner by the German troops. That's one of them. Lieutenant Colonel Nelson Stepayan, according to the Soviet sources, apparently shot down or destroyed in 239 combat sorties no less than 53 ships, 80 tanks, 600 armored vehicles and 27 aircraft. In December 1944, when his plane was hit by an anti-aircraft fire and he was seriously wounded, Stepayan steered his plane into a German warship and sank it. Squadron commander Leonid Beda, decorated as a hero of the Soviet Union, made more than 100 combat sorties in an Il-2. In Famous Russian Aircraft, he describes how he led a group of Il-2s supporting Soviet ground troops assaulting Sapun Hill in a crucial area near Sevastopol at the Crimea. Flying 6 to 9 meters, that's 20 to 30 feet, above the ground, they masked their approach in the valleys surrounding the German gun emplacements on the hill, and thus were able to inflict considerable damage. To facilitate their escape, Beda and his group took refuge in the valleys again, flying extremely low. Later, he and his fellow Il-2 pilots participated in strafing attacks on German vessels in Sevastopol's base and against German airbases nearby. Despite the presence of significant anti-aircraft artillery, Beda and his squadron mates succeeded in sinking several ships in the harbor and destroying a number of German aircraft. Lack of available Russian fighter protection, however, for the vulnerable and slow-moving Il-2s often led to severe losses in combat. In the spring and summer of 1942, for example, Il-2s were being lost at the very high rate of one for every 24 combat sorties. During the Battle of Stalingrad, that ratio increased to one aircraft per 10 to 12 combat missions. Luftwaffe fighters and anti-aircraft units claimed 6,900 victories over Il-2s in 1943 and 7,300 in 1944. These numbers might be exaggerated, but on the other hand, the Soviet numbers of losses might not be correct either. According to Soviet records, the total wartime Il-2 losses amounted to nearly 11,570 aircraft, or about 30% of the USSR's total combined aircraft losses. Nevertheless, by the end of World War II, the Il-2 Sturmovik was widely regarded as one of the best and most effective weapons deployed by the Soviet forces. Olya Grastyrenin, a highly regarded expert on Soviet air power, notes that during World War II, quote, it was precisely the Il-2 that was the most useful aircraft for our infantry and the aircraft most feared by the German infantry. According to Rostyanin, at the beginning of the war, Il-2s comprised less than 0.2% of the inventory of the Soviet Air Force. But soon this number rose and stayed at about 30% of all Soviet combat tactical aircraft for the duration of the war. For World War II, the Ilyushin Il-2 is an iconic aircraft. As iconic as the T-34 tank or the Katyusha rocket system, and uh, we will be touching on the Katyusha rocket system too at some point. And this aircraft contributed significantly to the Allied victory in World War II. Hello there, and thanks for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. Have you ever wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one live session with Kristaps? Then listen up, The Eastern Border is trying out the new and exciting app called Wisdom. On the 11th of December, Kristaps will be waiting for you on the Wisdom app to answer any of your questions about the show or The Eastern Border, or to simply have a chat. Look out for more details on the Eastern Border social media and mark the date, the 11th of December, on the Wisdom app. 
See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And, of course, we can't end the discussion about this awesome plane without some cool stories. Because World War II is filled with incredible stories of soldiers who went to impossible odds in order to survive. But there's a lot of little-known stories, too. However, there is the tale of the Soviet pilot who stole a German plane in order to return home. And even though the Axis invaded the Soviets and everything, like I said, we just mentioned here that, uh, well, the Soviets fought back and the old two played a large part out of this. By the spring of 1942, the front lines had stabilized, but the Germans still held the advantage and renewed new offensives. And while these new offensives were taking place, a Soviet fighter pilot by the name of Kuznetsov was conducting a reconnaissance mission behind the German lines in, well, an Il-2 aircraft. While returning home, he was ambushed by German fighters and crash-landed over the town of Kalinin. And, uh... Next story is quite strange, but, well, according to the Soviet sources, it actually happened. See, one of the German pilots who had shot Kuznetsov down landed his own plane near the crash site to collect souvenirs from the downed Soviet aircraft. Little did the German pilot know, however, but Kuznetsov had evacuated the cockpit of his plane and hid in the nearby woods. The German pilot landed his Messerschmitt and approached the down Il-2 when Kuznetsov made a run for the Messerschmitt. Before the German pilot could get to him, Kuznetsov had gotten into the cockpit of the Messerschmitt and took off. The next issue, as you can probably imagine, is that the Soviet forces mistook the Messerschmitt with Kuznetsov in it for being an enemy aircraft and opened fire on him with anti-aircraft guns. But Kuznetsov somehow managed to land the plane and reveal he was a friendly to his comrades. Kuznetsov was later awarded the Soviet Union's highest military honor in the form of the Hero of the Soviet Union title. He continued to fight in the war until 1944, when his eyes were blinded by enemy anti-aircraft fire while flying a new Il-2. Miraculously, he still somehow managed to land the plane safely behind enemy lines, despite his newly inflicted blindness. What happened to Kuznetsov after this remains largely unknown, but there's no denying that this story is truly something, and hey, 
It involves ill too, so why not? And um, there's also a lot of myths going around about this ill too thing. For example, one of the more controversial parts is about this second gunner at the behind of the plane. You see, all the Russian texts that I mention state that um, the death rate of not the pilots who were in the very armored frontal section, but those machine gunners who were sitting at the rear end of the plane and protecting it from behind, about whom the official date says that they died even less than the pilots did. Well, a lot of historians now contest this claim, stating that as the back part of the plane was wooden, because it was a dive bomber and, you know, they better protected the frontal parts, yeah, there was a death trap for those involved manning these machine guns. And, well, you know, we all know about the fighter pilots, but we really don't have a lot of names about those sitting in the back over there. And as all the death rates are, well, either significantly censored or not even revealed, maybe not to destroy morale, maybe just to, you know, hide some incompetentness of the generals and all that stuff, we might never know. But according to war stories, yeah, this whole fact that uh, these people were there and that we will never know how many of them actually, you know, survived, that's a bit crazy because I can't really know about this whole situation. Another nice little story about Il-2 is from one Vasily Yemelyarenko. He led an Ilyushin Il-2 Sturmovik flight in late June 1942 against a German-held airfield near Artyemovsk in eastern Ukraine, flying low up a deep ravine to avoid detection. The Il-2 planes banked slightly to rise above the hill to their fort, and the ground gave way as they spotted two rows of German bombers lined up nearly on the airfield ahead. Emilienko had lowered the nose of his plane for the attack when he heard a deafening sound and the craft jolted suddenly as a large hole burst open in his right wing. He apparently worked swiftly, straightening the plane and firing a salvo of rockets into the parked enemy aircraft. Emilienko's machine guns interrupted and the bombers caught fire. His wingmen, according to their own stories, of course, dropped their granule phosphorus, which spread the flames that roared even higher into the sky. Emilienko worked desperately to pull his plane above the wall of tall pines located beyond the airfield, but the plane was hit in the engine. As, you know, if you remember, the engine was... Uh, the weakest part of Il-2. The oil pressure plummeted towards zero, and the water temperature soared. The experienced pilot knew he had five minutes at best before the engine ceased as he frantically maneuvered towards the safety of the Soviet lines. The pilot skimmed the terrain, and every spin of the propeller pulled him ever closer to the safety. The engine finally seized up, and Emilienko released the robust landing gear and came roaring down on the rocky soil at more than 80 kilometers per hour. He was miraculously still alert as the dust settled around him. He looked about to get his bearings as a burst of machine gun fire struck the plane's heavy armor plating. There was another burst, and when that ended, Emilienko jumped from the cockpit and fell flat on the ground as German machine pistols opened up. The enemy soldiers seemed almost to be toying with him, firing any time he moved, yet not advancing or showing themselves. It took the pilot more than two harrowing hours to crawl some 200 meters from the plane and to the safety of the Soviet comrade, who had carefully edged forward to rescue the downed veteran. And, obviously, this is just another nice little story from another hero of the Soviet Union. And these studies are all often, but still. This whole plane is kind of a testament to how Soviets build anything. 
I mean, if you remember the episode on T-34s, this is the tank analogue of IL-2, or IL-2 is the plate analogue of that. Soviets built their robust technology and encouraged acts of selfless heroism, which everyone did at the time, because, you know, motherland is sacred after all. But all these people who are still forgotten in wars and all this stuff, yeah, it's kind of interesting to talk about amazing technology and what the war happened, but to be frank, well, fighter planes are fighter planes, but war is always a tragedy. But yeah, this was the first of our new plane series, and I'm sorry that this episode is a bit shorter than usual, but that's because there's, well, not that much pure information available on the IL-2s, except, you know, all the date of the casualties. And if you believe the Soviet casualty numbers of just 11,000, then, yeah, there's a weird reason why only about 12 or so remain in today's world. All in all, is kind of strange. But, you know, after them came the IL-10s, which fought in the Korea War, together with the, all the MiGs. And when I'm saying Korea War, then, yeah, American pilots have faced these in battle. So, IL-2, by the end of the war, was considered somewhat obsolete, since there were better planes out already. However, this trusty workhorse of an airplane really pulled through, and a lot of acts above and beyond what was necessary to win the war was committed with them. So that's, that's a bit of a refreshing technical episode for all of you military tech fans out there. Anyways, we shall be continuing our Stalin series, and I will also make another episode concerning the Belarus border, since there's a, quite a lot of new information that I read about the situation, and I would like to provide a more nuanced view on that part as well. And, well, of course we shall be continuing this, but I have um, a bit of private news to end and, you know, smooth out this episode. For starters, we apparently have this shop ready, and we're now calculating the shipping costs, because we updated the webpage. The easternborder.lv is back on, and you can get the episodes there if you want, then you won't hear the, um, the ACOS stuff, so that's good if you want to listen to that. You can subscribe to our Patreon, the links are all there. We um, have our own store with um, all the hoodies and everything, and I hope this is going to get up and running super soon. Then we also still have the Rusen Sov link. Please, if you buy anything, if you want to buy some truly Soviet weird-ass things, such as 20s and 30s posters and, and stuff, click Rusen Sov link from our webpage, and, well, we'll get a kickback from that as well. Also, if you don't like Patreon for some reason, but still would like to support the show, then always please go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and click that little PayPal button, and, you know, you can just help us out with a one-time donation, which would be really nice. Secondly, we will be going, well, I will be going together with uh, my girlfriend to Rome in the 13th to 16th of March. And I'm pretty sure I have at least some Italian listeners here. Hey, maybe some of you live in Rome, maybe you can, you know give some advice of what to see specifically, where there won't be that many tourists, or, or where to eat that's not terribly overpriced. If you are in there, in that region, in Rome, and at that point in time, in the Ides of March, which is kind of funny, then, uh, yeah, please email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com, and we'll bring you Soviet souvenirs, and you can maybe give us a tour, and if you have, I don't know, a spare apartment that we could rent for the time being, or whatever, for these couple of days that we will be there, that would be nice too. And, you know, meeting up and hanging out and just, you know, chilling would be pretty cool, too. I mean, hey, I'll be there, so why not? 
I definitely will see all the historical parts and I'll post all the pictures since, well, as a historian, I've always wanted to visit Rome. Well, that sadly had never happened before, so I can't wait for this trip there. But yeah, that's it for today, and again, sorry for this being a bit short. However, yeah, there's sadly, due to the casualty rates, not that many cool war stories to talk about this time. Anyways, truly, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Remember that happiness is mandatory, and do svidanya, tovarish. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.